We'll hear argument next in case 09448, Hart v. Reliance Standard Life Insurance Company. Mr. Atz. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Fourth Circuit vacated an award of attorney's fees to Petitioner Hart, even though the District Court found Respondent violated ERISA in bad faith and required Respondent to redetermine benefits within 30 days or face adverse judgment. And Ms. Hart then secured the full disability benefits after that court-enforceable order. Ms. Hart is entitled to — is eligible for a fee award under Section 502G1 of ERISA by proper application of this Court's established fee standards under any test this Court has previously established. But to be clear — What do you define as assuming that we go back to our prior language and use in Ruckold some success on the merits? What's the some success on the merits that you claim your client reached? In that instance, the some success on the merits is the finding of the ERISA violation in this instance. Now, I believe that this circuit said, yes, there are cases where we have so held, but that's because there was a cause of action in the complaint that alleged the violation of the Act. But here there wasn't. Here there was a claim for benefits only, and you didn't get benefits. That was the circuit's reasoning. So tell me where they erred and how we go back to defining some success on the merits in light of that position by the circuit. They misread the complaint, Justice Sotomayor. We are claiming a claim for benefits. As part of that claim, we ask for equitable relief for the ERISA violation. The heart of ERISA is the full and fair review process in 1133 of the statute, because without a full and fair review by the plan administrator, that fiduciary cannot get to the right result. It violated that obligation here. We asked for the benefits, but the district court, instead of awarding the benefits, said in the first — in the second instance, here's your second bite at the apple, get it right this time. That's success on the merits under ERISA, because they must abide by their fiduciary obligations, and they breached it here. The relief the district court formulated, in essence, was an equitable-type relief. Do it again. We asked for that in the complaint. We asked for equitable relief. Sotomayor, so what do you think are the meaning of our footnote, Chief Justice Rehnquist's footnote in Ruckel's, who said a procedural victory is not some success on the merits? How do you differentiate what he meant by a victory, some procedural victory is not enough? I think it foreshadowed the Hanrahan-type case, and we are miles apart from Hanrahan. Hanrahan, which Respondent is relying upon, was the circuit court reversing the district court on a pure civil procedure issue. Here, there is a right. It is a process right. So when the process right is violated, your relief is going to necessarily be process-driven. It was the same in Hanrahan. There was a right to a certain process in the lower court, and 
the, uh, the person complaining achieved reversal. It was sent back and said, do it right. Give this person the process that, that he's entitled to. But in Hanrahan, there was no finding of a violation of law, Justice Scalia. Here we have a violation of ERISA, a violation of a fiduciary obligation by the plan administrator. The relief accorded for that violation was a remand back to the plan administrator to get it right. That's the difference (coughs) between our case and Hanrahan. In Hanrahan, there was no finding of a violation of law. No one was found to be a legal wrongdoer. We have that here. The fiduciary breached its obligation. Are you saying that in um, Hanrahan there was no prod at all from the court, and here there is? I'm sorry? In, In Hanrahan there was no prod from the court. The court didn't say anything. That it was the filing of the complaint that led to the action, wasn't it? Well, what happened was is the district court, I believe, granted a motion to dismiss or, or a, a, a motion for judgment as of law at trial. The, dis- the Court of Appeals reversed that. What we have here is a prodding from a court, but moreover, a finding of a violation by a court. The court found reliance violated ERISA. That's the key distinction between here and Hanrahan. And Suppose uh, now, in response to do it right, reliance on a complete record and very careful review finds that total disability was not proved. Then there would be no fees, right? No. Under our position, the Ms. Hart is eligible for fees, and the district court can take into account Trust law principles, which are embodied in what we call this five-factor test, to determine whether to award fees. She's eligible for fees based on the violation by reliance, in bad faith. We have a legal wrongdoer here. The amount of those fees, Justice Ginsburg, may be determined in part by her degree of success. Well, uh, this district court kept jurisdiction over the action. He more or less waited to see how the story came out before he wrote the plot. Uh, Suppose the district court said, all you came to me for was an order for remand. I give you the order for remand. Case ended. At that point, he doesn't know how it's going to come out. At that point, can uh, uh, can the district court award attorney's fees? Absolutely. The, The court at that point, if he's closing the case out in particular and entering judgment as to the violation. So that even if... Uh, when it goes back to reliance, reliance, find that it's patently frivolous, close to a fraud, she's, uh, the employee still gets the fees? The only way it's going back, Justice Kennedy, is from a violation of law. So in that regard, she has succeeded on the merits by proving a violation, regardless of the outcome, at the end of the day. Now, here, certainly, she got the benefit. So we, shirt, we, we, we meet even Buchanan and beyond. But in the case where the district court is sending it back, it must be sending it back for a violation of law and save one instance. The claimant comes forward and says, I have additional evidence that I didn't, I didn't submit below. I've got an equitable ground to, to convince the court to, in essence, reopen the record. I want it to, I want to send it back. In that instance, fees should not be awarded because it was the claimant's 
uh, uh, fault in not getting this, this record this record evidence in. Well, she prevailed in some way to give her another chance to make that argument. I, I, again, I'm just saying I think you're giving up too much. I, maybe I am, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, but but my point is to, to try to distinguish Hanrahan in the sense that we have a judicial finding of a legal violation here. It, what I was trying to articulate earlier, perhaps inartfully, was that she, she's eligible for fees under the five-factor test, but in that instance, the district court is not likely to use its discretion to grant fees in that instance. That well, what if you get in Justice Kennedy's situation where the, the court doesn't know what's going to happen on remand? Uh, you know, the objection is the, the, the administrator throws it out saying, you know, you, you filed the wrong form, so you lose. And the district court says, you can't throw it out on that basis under trust law. It doesn't matter. And it goes back. Now, the district court doesn't know what's going to happen. Does she get fees or not? It, it depends on what the district court does with it, but she has to prove a violation of ERISA for it to go back. And if she proves that, she's eligible for fees, and the district court, in its discretion, can take, can take all these factors into so account. So is, is the district court supposed to wait until the whole thing is over before deciding the fee application? I think the better practice is for the district court to hold the case over and supervise the remand. But if the district court enters judgment at that point, then obvious, then under Rule 54, or the, they have to come in and uh, apply for fees within 14 days of that judgment. But this case does not give this court an opportunity specifically to give the court's, district court's guidance whether to keep these cases open or not, much like the Social Security cases that happened in the late 80s and early 90s. But to, to get back to our main point, which is this is not a prevailing party statute, that was the fundamental error by the Fourth Circuit in imposing a prerequisite to determining whether a claimant is entitled to fees. Section 502G1 is not a prevailing party statute for three primary reasons. First, the language and structure of the statute. The words prevailing party, a term of art that has been used for hundreds of years, is not within Section 502G1. But it is in other sections of ERISA. Its statutory sibling, Section 502G2, contains a judgment requirement. Another provision of ERISA, 1451E, uses the terms prevailing party. How could somebody have some success on the merits if they don't achieve a judgment of some sort? In this case, in the, in the Bradley case, which was cited in Hanrahan, said you have many final orders in a case. And if the Court determines an issue of a particular issue in a case, and in here it's finding an ERISA violation, and as relief for that, they are issuing uh, an order requiring Reliance to act within 30 days, let's say the case settles at that point. That's enough for fees to issue should the parties not be able to agree on fees as part of the settlement. It's the judicial act in finding the violation that triggers the, triggers the success uh, on the merits. And this case was on the merits. As we pointed out in our very yellow brief, uh, the uh, district court — But under court your theory, presumably, no um, relief has to be granted. Relief it, does not have to be granted. The district court — But then court, what, what's the diff — is it your theory that if the district court, for whatever reason, if this wasn't an ERISA case, 
where a remand or where the court said they did violate, but I've now looked at the evidence that you're proffering, the new evidence they didn't consider, and it's not enough for benefits, you don't get it. Is your argument that um, you're entitled to fees because they decided there was, the court decided there was a violation of ERISA? Yes, it is. My argument is you're eligible for fees, and the amount of fees will be taken into account in determining the degree in the district court, taking these five factors into account, taking into effect your position on the merits, the defendant's position on the merits, and determining what that fee award should be, but it should not operate as a barrier to getting into an eligibility question. So she's eligible for fees in that instance, but what those fees should be is at the district court's discretion. Going back to Justice Scalia's question, what's the difference between uh, Hannah and with there's a violation of the Civil Procedure Code, which is an entitlement to process? Um, why aren't you successful if this is a non-ERISA situations merely for a finding that the district court acted improperly. Because you have to look at the party who is violating. Here, it's the party who's violating the law. It's a party to the suit who is violating the law. That violation is found. And Hanrahan, it's, it's a civil procedure. The district court didn't, didn't do something right here. And that's not a violation of the, of law. That's a, that's a misapplication of a civil, of a rule of civil procedure. Here, we have a violation of law by a party. That's the fundamental difference between us and May I ask, <coughs> ask this question? And the question here is whether it was eligibility for fees. Could the d- district judge, in your view, say, yes, I think the plaintiff is eligible for fees, but it was actually a very difficult legal issue and the defendant's position was entirely reasonable, so I think as a matter of discretion I will not award any fees? The district court can exercise its discretion and not award fees. I think, however, the the better result is when a violation of law is proven, the plaintiff or, in this instance, a a, a claimant or beneficiary should be entitled to some amount of fees because the purpose of the statute explicitly stated in the statute is to protect beneficiaries and claimants and have access to the federal courts. If every case is a close case and you're not giving, giving fees, then these are folks of limited means. These are folks by definition cannot work when they're disabled. And you're eating up their benefit through attorney's fees. And that cannot be the point of the statute when Congress enacted this. It is to protect beneficiaries, to give appropriate, uh, give appropriate relief and keep open access to the federal courts. If I can get back to, again, why this uh, is not a prevailing party statute, the language and structure clearly show that. The history and context show it as well. And I'm not talking legislative history. I'm talking about the fact that ERISA supplanted the Welfare and Pension Plans Disclosure Act, which required a judgment before fees could issue. But Congress chose to remove that requirement when it originally enacted ERISA does not have that judgment language and does not have prevailing party language. Moreover, this Court repeatedly has held that trust law should inform the interpretation of ERISA. Trust law for hundreds of years has taken into account these principles that the district courts and courts of appeals have relied on 
for at least 30 years under ERISA to inform, guide, and limit district court's discretion in awarding fees. I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Shaw. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The District Court found that respondents' original decision denying benefits disregarded pertinent medical evidence in violation of ERISA and found that the decision was otherwise unsupported by substantial evidence. Based on those findings, the District Court ordered respondent to make a new benefits determination, after which respondent finally granted the benefits due. Those facts established petitioner's eligibility for a fee award under ERISA Section 502G1, which authorizes a court to award reasonable attorney's fees, quote, in its discretion, end quote. That discretion, as for ERISA more generally, is to be exercised in accordance with well-established trust law principles, and those principles quite clearly reject a strict prevailing party standard. Could you tell me whether you differ in your definition of some success on the merits than your predecessor colleague? Do you define it as, in the manner he did, that it's any um, legal judgment in the petitioner's favor that another party has done a wrongful act? I, th- I, I think I'm summarizing his position accurately. Yeah, I, I think we are in an agreement, Your Honor, with, with, uh, with petitioner's characterization. When there's a judicial order finding a violation. No, that's different than what he said. Okay. All right. Um, yes, here there was an order of remand. That's clear. And I can understand the difference between an order, because there are many decisions of the court that end up in orders that are not final judgments. But there are decisions like this one, I think according to him, that if the district court had said there was a violation of ERISA and the parties then settled without a judicial order reflecting that finding and or requiring a remand, I think according to him, he would say this party was entitled to fees. I don't want to characterize his view, but here's our view uh, on on some success on the merits of the order, to to be concrete about it. The order in this case, assuming this case. No, I didn't assume this case. Pardon? No order. Just a finding. So so there's a finding of an ERISA violation, period. And then a settlement. And then a settlement. Uh, Well, Your Honor, I think it depends in which framework we're operating under. I think if we're operating under well-established trust law principles, that clearly qualifies as enough success to justify a a fee award. Uh, And and we can look at several of the trust cases cited in both our brief and petitioner's brief. In Ray Cattell's estate is discussed in all the briefs. There the plaintiff brought a claim to remove a trustee. And the basis for the claim to remove the trustee was a contention that the trustee wasn't complying with one of the terms of the trust. After he filed the suit, and this is before even any finding by the judge, the trustee then complied with that particular term of the trust. And then what the court said was, well, because the trustee complied with the underlying premise or the motivation for your suit, I'm going to deny your claim to have the trustee Well, that seems like remo- a catalyst theory, and um, that was at least in dicta rejected in, in uh, Ruckhaus. So how do you do Well, it wasn't re- in, in the dictum in Ruckel's house. It was actually accepted, Your Honor. In the, in the footnote, the court, in the dictum within Ruckel's house, the court says uh, quite plainly that 
Congress, in departing from a strict prevailing party language in Ruckelshaus, meant to embrace judicial relief that wasn't encapsulated within a judicial order. But we're far afield from Ruckelshaus here because we actually have a judicial order, and we're far afield from the outer limits of the trust limit — trust law cases, which, for example, in Ray Cattell's estate, which I just mentioned, and by no means is in Ray Cattell's estate an outlier. The Third Circuit's opinion in Dardovich, which is also cited in our brief, recounts in Ray Cattell's estate as falling well within the history of trust law cases. Petitioner's reply brief at page 11 cites Green v. Cavano. That's another case where a plaintiff brought — brought a claim that a union fund was not complying with accounting and proper bookkeeping procedures after he filed the suit. They fell in line, adopted the various procedures that plaintiff had sought, and the Court still said, drawing upon trust law principles, we're going to afford fees. Now, again, I don't think this Court has to do that. As the Respondent points out, the position you're taking is unusual for the government. The government is usually arguing against fees because the fees are often assessed against the government. Right. So long as you know that you're making your bed, you're going to have to lie in it. And you're essentially saying that when there is simply a procedural victory, which happens all the time, when — when an agency is — is reversed in its procedure, even though the — the Petitioner here doesn't get any concrete relief until it goes back to the agency and may lose in the agency, ultimately, you're — you're content to say that fees are assessable in that situation just by reason of the procedural victory. Your Honor, a couple of responses. First of all, ERISA is somewhat unique in that ERISA, first of all, this provision doesn't have prevailing party languages, unlike EJA. No, I'm talking about other prevailing — I'm talking about other statutes that don't say prevailing party. Okay. Sure. I think still this provision is unique in that it's informed explicitly by trust law principles. As this Court has held numerous — in numerous decisions regarding other ERISA provisions, and the trust law principles depart from the American rule. All of those other statutes which you have in mind, Justice Scalia, are premised on the background of the American rule. The trust law departs from American rule, and so when you interpret ERISA Section 502G1 based upon the trust law principles, I think that supports a different — I'm not sure it's reasonable to interpret an attorney's fee provision as having anything to do with trust law. Well, even — It's a requirement of attorney's fees enacted by — by the Federal Congress, and I — I find that very artificial. Well, Your Honor, it's — it's a fee provision enacted in — within ERISA which explicitly states as one of its purposes to protect beneficiaries and to provide them access to courts. This isn't in the legislative history. I can see now why the red brief has a very substantial appendix with statutes. You say, oh, this is unique. Well, then we may have many, many different kinds of statutes. This does not provide for — this is not a prevailing party statute. Correct. But just in going through the list of the statutes, there are many statutes that are not prevailing party statutes. And it seems to me that you say it's unique. Well, it's unique in the sense it's in ERISA, but I think it's very close to many, many of the statutes with the language that are in the red brief appendix. Right. And, Your Honor, previously the government has made narrow arguments. For example, narrower arguments — Okay. So just take the — what is the government's position? The ERISA plaintiff wants $5 million. They denied everything. 
the, the uh, court says, I notice here there was a 30-day deadline that you had, and he only gave you 28 days, so I'm sending it back, but I'll tell you, your claim that there was enough evidence is absurd. You're never going to win it. And then he goes back and he loses it. Okay? He's had a procedural victory. Does he get attorney's fees? Not, not a chance that he's going to win this claim, and indeed, he loses it. He doesn't get a penny. Does he get attorney's fees because, on a technicality, he run a new hearing? Under your hypothetical, Justice Breyer, a district court would be within its jurisdiction to deny attorney's fees. Of course. My question is, he would does the statute, in the view of the government, permit attorney's fees in the case I just mentioned? Probably not in application. It, he would be eligible, but a district court — Your answer is yes. It yes. does permit it. Yes, but a district court applying — All right. You're just saying it won't be a problem because the district court judges are all reasonable, and I know they think what, that. What, what if <laughs> — what if the success is preliminary? You know, the plaintiff survives a motion to dismiss. The plaintiff survives a motion for summary judgment, wins every procedural issue, wins a privilege issue, gets discovery issues resolved, and at the end of the day loses. No, Your Honor. Has had, why? He's had some success. No, Your Honor, because that would be captured within Handrahan, we think. And that's, and that's easily distinguishable, because those are errors, even if some of those procedural victories were overturned on appeal or procedural losses were overturned on appeal. Those are all errors, uh, errors within the court system or victories within the procedures of the court system, not a violation of uh, on the merits of the underlying claim, which is what we have here. We have a finding of a violation of ERISA and then relief ordered to respond. aren't you treating the statute as though it did have a prevailing party clause in it? Pardon, Your Honor? The, the, is not your construction one that just treats the statute as though it required the plaintiff to be a prevailing party? Well, well, Your Honor, no. I think our, our, our argument is to interpret it in light of trust law principles. Now, the trust law cases there is language in some of the trust law cases that suggests that uh, fees, fees could be awarded to unsuccessful litigants or regardless of outcome. But I think if you read those cases on the facts of those cases, uh, they don't go that far. But I think what they do embody is a much broader notion of success than the strict prevailing party jurisprudence that this Court has promulgated. Well, under your, under your rule, would it be error for the district court to terminate its jurisdiction? It must keep jurisdiction to see how the play comes out in the end? Uh, no, no, Your Honor, I don't think it must keep jurisdiction, but certainly in a case where it does regain. Well, but it certainly has to in order to adopt the ameliorating um, factors that you, that you use in order to justify this rule. And I, I, it's not clear to me that Courts usually retain jurisdiction in these cases. Uh, may I respond? Your, a couple of responses, uh, Justice Kennedy. First, uh, if they didn't retain jurisdiction, and in the Seventh Circuit, for example, that's one circuit which says that these orders have to be final and final judgment has to be entered, then we're exactly analogous to a sentence for Social Security case. And this Court has made it clear in a line of decisions that upon entry of final judgment, and those are exactly analogous in the sense that what happens is that the Court finds that the decision below committed some error in law, it vacates that decision, and then sends it back to the Social Security Administration for new determination without preordaining the result, regardless of the result there at the time of the remand and entry of judgment, that plaintiff is eligible fee for fees. We think that the same outcome would be control controlled here, even if the Court applied its strict prevailing party jurisprudence. Thank, Thank you, you, Counsel.
Mr. Rosenkranz. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, no judge has ever decided the merits of petitioner's claim for benefits. Under this Court's holding in Ruckel's House, the petitioner must demonstrate some success on the merits, and under Rule 54, she must specify the judgment entitling her to an award. What about the footnote that was mentioned in Ruckel House that said, Congress found it necessary to explicitly state that the term appropriate extended to suits that forced defendants to abandon illegal conduct, illegal conduct was found here, although without formal court order. Yes, Your Honor. Footnote 8 of Ruckel's House addressed one sentence of legislative history of a different statute. And only so far as the Court pointed out that the sentence was of no use to Sierra Club in that case. I don't think the footnote is properly read to be a full-fledged endorsement of the catalyst theory. This is not uh, merely a catalyst. I mean, in um, Buckhannon, the catalyst theory was rejected. Here, the Court said, if I were to decide right now, the District Court said, I am inclined to rule for Hart. But I'm going to give uh, Reliance an opportunity to respond. So the Court had evaluated the evidence at that point as favoring Hart. To that extent, it wasn't a purely procedural ruling. It says, as things stand now, Hart should get peace. But I'm leaving the door open. So it wasn't just a procedural decision. It was an evaluation of the evidence up to that point, wasn't it? Yes, Your Honor, but it would be an utterly unadministrable rule to attempt to weigh the inclinations of district judges in their opinions. This, this Court's precedents have made clear that we weigh success on the merits by evaluating judicial judgments. Well, the judgment is send it back. That's what it says, send it back. And the reason for sending it back is this woman was undergoing terrible pain, that the Social Security Administration says she's completely disabled, that uh, uh, she's entitled in the, uh, on the evidence shown. Uh, there's, there's no substantial evidence to the contrary. And but you, the company, want to take money from her instead of giving her the money. Now, I've read the record. It doesn't support anything contrary to what I've said. So now you send it back. Now, what is that but a big victory for the other side, which then leads the company to say they're right, pay them? Now, if that isn't, I mean, what words of English, if you're we're talking about partial success, partial success, or not total defeat, and that goes the language from, from, from the Ruckel's house, not total success. You still get it. Okay. What in the English language can we read in a case or a statute that would say you shouldn't reach that common-sense result? Now, of course, I'm characterizing it a little bit, but it does seem like a common-sense result. Your Honor, Petitioner, in this case, like all plaintiffs, arrived in court requesting a judgment, a judgment awarding her benefits. Indeed, she believed she was entitled to such a judgment as a matter of law, and she moved for judgment as a matter of law for summary judgment. 
What the district court actually did was deny that motion for summary judgment. Rather than give her the judgment she sought, the district court employed a particular procedural maneuver, which was to remand the case, quote, remand the case, to her litigation adversary to reconsider the question. His point, your adversary's point, is the court couldn't affect that procedural move without taking step one in what was requested. It had to find some sort of violation, either to remand or to grant benefits, so that the relief sought, by definition, needed a finding by the court. And your adversary says the court found an ERISA violation. Now the type of relief it grants is up to its discretion. This is an equitable situation. And it exercised its discretion by doing a remand. Why is that view different than calling it a procedural step? Isn't that a substantive win? Your Honor, this is a purely interlocutory order. So this was not an end to the case. This was not a decision on the merits. This was a purely interlocutory order on the road to a decision on the merits, perhaps. But the district court denied her motion for summary judgment, did not to conclude that she was entitled to benefits as a matter of law, and instead remanded the case for further proceedings. Counsel, what, what is the impact on your position of our decision last week in Concrite versus Fromert? I know you haven't had a chance to brief it, but I'm also sure you had a chance to read it. Your Honor, Concrite emphasizes that these judgments are to be made in the first instance and, in fact, in the second instance by claims administrators. That that is the first instance. One thing it did emphasize, that in the typical case, the likely relief is going to be sending it back rather than making a judicial decision, which I, which seems to me then that, and then presumably in most cases the person would prevail before the plan administrator. So given Concrite, your position is going to severely limit the circumstances under which claimants are entitled to fees. Your Honor, it's, you're correct that in Concrite, the, the court, court indicated that in most cases the district court should remand under circumstances like this. You're quite correct. Under circumstances like this, then there would be fewer opportunities for district courts to award, to award fees. And that's a correct result under 502G1, which, as informed by. Even though the, the, as in Concrite, the claimant's success can be, before the remand, can be quite dramatic. I mean, this was a very, very significant victory for the claimant, and to get it sent, sent back under those circumstances. Your Honor, I'm not sure this should be characterized as a victory. This is not a procedural maneuver that the plaintiff sought. The plaintiff asked for summary judgment, and her summary judgment motion was denied. And instead, the district court chose to remand the case to her litigation adversary. Surely, at that moment, at least, this surely could not have felt like a victory. Future claimants will not ask for summary judgment from the district court, presumably, in light of Concrite. They will ask that the case be remanded. So in future cases, will they have obtained a victory? I don't think that future claimants will ask for a remand as their final form of relief, Your Honor. This was, the relief that one asks for in one's complaint is the final judicial relief that one wants. This is a. Well, we've, we've already told them they can't get that. Your Honor, the, 
a plaintiff could get an award, could get the relief of benefits if a claims administrator had acted uh, um, severely improperly or in very bad faith. The a district court still has power to uh, issue an award of. Now the claimant doesn't doesn't really claim that. The claimant just says uh, uh, this was a wrong decision and uh, uh, they should do it correctly. And and the claimant knows that all he's going to get from the district court is a remand. But the correct way. So he would not ask for for money, and therefore would be victorious on, on your analysis. If all he asked for was a remand, he got a remand. No, Your Honor, a properly framed complaint under ERISA should still be a claim for benefits. Uh, the, uh, the remand that Conkright contemplates is still an interlocutory remand, like the remand here. One does not put in one's complaint desire for interlocutory relief any more than one asks. It's a remand, it's a remand, but, but on limited grounds. That is, uh, the holding of the district court. Uh, the, the ERISA administrator was out, it was an abuse of his discretion to refuse to give this woman nothing. In my opinion, she's entitled at least to $30,000. But whether it's 30 or 35, I don't know. So I remanded it to the, to the uh, ERISA administrator so he can decide to act within, the, within his discretion, give her either 30, 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5. Now, on your view, attorney's fees, all the statute says is the court in its discretion may allow a reasonable attorney's fee. Nothing more. Now, what would stop an attorney's fee in that situation, your if, if that's what you think? Your Honor, a remand order under those circumstances might constitute success on the merits because it resolves an issue in the case, which is liability in the case. So per- that perhaps would constitute success on the merits. This resolved no substantive issue on the case. This remand order simply said as a procedural matter, go back and look at it again. So you distinguish between him saying you have to give her at least 30 and his saying the evidence that supports giving her less than 30 is uh, 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 insufficient, is substantially, uh, is, what's, what's the word, uh, yeah. You know, worthless. <laughs> yes, Your Honor. This court has this court has expressly distinguished between judicial. That's the line you draw. Yes, Your Honor. The difference between judicial pronouncements and judicial relief, which is a what, line that this court I, I, has that, That's difficult. Let's assume that a claims administrator or a plan administrator is not deciding the claim. The party comes to court and says, "Under ERISA, I have a right to a decision within X number of days. Force them, mandamus them." to give me a decision. The Court says, reasonable, you have a right to one, and orders them to. Under your theory, they've won nothing? No, Your Honor. In your hypothetical, the, uh, the remand order would presumably be a final judgment, and it might well constitute success on the So you're, you're, wait a minute. Then we go back to a question that was asked by one of my colleagues. If a, uh, plan participant came in and said they didn't consider evidence they should have. Um, they didn't seek my uh, treating physician's documents, and here they are. They should consider them now. And the Court says, you're right, enters a remand order and dismisses the case. That's enough. 
Your Honor, I'm not sure that's a properly formatted ERISA complaint. If the gravamen of the complaint is, I want my benefits, then But what, what's the difference between the first example I gave, a mandamus to issue a decision? That's not a, a claim for benefits either. It's a claim for a decision. What's the difference between that and the second? If the, if the gravamen of the complaint is a complaint for benefits, then the complaint should ask for benefits and the judge should re- resolve that case. A remand would always maintain jurisdiction, should always maintain jurisdiction over the case, thus always be interlocutory and procedural. Is that how it works? Uh, remands always retain jurisdiction? I would, I would have thought the district judge would want the thing off his uh, uh, or her docket, uh, you know, for the statistics, if anything, and, and uh, would, would say, and maybe could say, well, what if the judge says, look, I don't know if you're going to prevail or not on remand. Uh, my decision actually doesn't help you much one way or the other. But if you get benefits, then the other side is liable for attorney's fees, and I assume you'll be able to work out the amount. If you don't, he's not. End of case. Sent back to the administrator. Your Honor, on the research that we've done, most district courts hold jurisdiction on remand such as this, and we believe that that is the proper course. When the case, the gravamen of the case is a complaint for benefits, if the district court merely remands to the ERISA claims administrator, the, the merits of the case simply have not been decided. That may be, but why can't they do this? What would be wrong with this heretical idea that as long as the plaintiff wins something out of the court, the district judge, that group of people we were talking about, has discretion to decide whether ultimately they got something significant of what they wanted. And as long as that judgment helped them get something significantly of what they wanted, attorney's fees are fine. And we leave it all up to the district judge as long as the district judge doesn't abuse the discretion uh, that that standard gives him. What would, I mean, would the earth come to an end? Would, what would happen? Uh, that would be so terrible if we said something like that. Your Honor, I believe that would be to embrace the catalyst theory that this Court rejected in 2000. It didn't say anything against the catalyst theory. It said you have to remember this is an American country. We follow the American rule, and there has to be something special in the situation. And what would be special in the situation is that the judge has to decide that as a result of the favorable ruling, the plaintiff really did get something significantly of what she wanted. Your Honor, the Court was careful in Ruckel's House to say that a purely procedural victory would not suffice. Now, purely procedural victory may well, may well result in success for a plaintiff at some later stage. It could result in out-of-court success. But this Court has been crystal clear that we do not look for success out of court. We don't look for it in interlocutory orders. Mr. Rosenkrantz, suppose the, um, the complaint was, I asked for a turnover of certain documents. They refused without reason. And the Court says, you're right, you're entitled to those documents. It's interlocutory. There's no decision. But the only thing that the plaintiff asked for, the plaintiff got, that is, entitlement to the documents. The court said, you are entitled to the documents, and then it goes back, and the documents are turned over because the court has ordered that. Under your theory, because there was no determination of benefits, even that ruling, which was a total victory, for the plaintiff, 
doesn't open the door to fees. Well, on your hypothetical, Your Honor, that would not be an interlocutory order. So if a plaintiff arrives seeking only documents and the district court awards her her documents, that would be the end of the case, and the district court would properly relinquish jurisdiction. And we could evaluate, compare the result uh, that the district court gave a, gave a plaintiff with uh, what the plaintiff originally asked for. But this is not such so a So that case. would qualify, even if in the end of the, uh, the, end of the day, no uh, un- no award is made. No benefits are awarded. Your Honor, it might be proper to frame a complaint under ERISA for a purely procedural remedy like some documents. That is not the main run of ERISA cases. So the, the, in the normal case, a petitioner arrives, a plaintiff arrives asking for benefits. But you, and, but you say, you, you call this purely procedural and you said, yeah, but that's the only thing that she asked for, so she got it, so she qualifies for fees. Even though you just characterize it as purely procedural, is a purely procedural ruling, but it's all she asked for. Your Honor, I'm, I'm not sure that a properly framed ERISA complaint would be pure, would be for a purely procedural uh, result. If one could frame an ERISA claim like that, which I think is extremely well, it's a, I'm, I'm not dealing with something obscure. It's a, the plaintiff says, "I've asked for certain documents." They withheld those documents with no good cause at all. And the court said, you're right, turn over documents. It's not hypothetical, it's just that that's the situation. There is a final order, turn over the documents. But it's a procedural order, right? Yes, Your Honors. But nonetheless, benefits would be nonetheless fees would be available. Your Honor, our position is that in this case, uh, the, the remand order was both purely procedural and interlocutory, and so it fails under both those grounds. On your hypothetical, the, uh, the order would be a final order, but presumably still purely procedural, and so perhaps not success on the merits even on that hypothetical. What, what you're, changing, you're, you're changing the answer. The answer that you first gave me was it's a discrete issue, final judgment, Yes, qualifies for fees. Now you, you're saying no, no fees. Uh, Your Honor, it would qualify in the sense that it would be a final judgment, not an interlocutory order. Whether that's properly characterized as a purely procedural victory or not, I'm not sure. Most ERISA claims are not framed that way. They're mostly framed as claims for benefits, not for purely procedural. Suppose the claim were they're just not processing my application. So court order them to process my application. Right, they're not doing anything. We order them to go process the application. End of case in the district court. Fee entitlement? Again, Your Honor, that would perhaps be best characterized as a purely procedural victory, even though it's a final judgment and even though it's what the plaintiff sought. Again, in this case, this order was purely interlocutory, and so it's a much easier case. This, in this case, this was a procedural step on the road to a final judgment. This was not a final judgment at all, and not at all what the petitioner sought. The government, in response to questions about the um, significance and the consequences of its position, said, oh, this is, this is a unique statute. It's an ERISA statute. Uh, do you agree that uh, 
if, if we rule for you, it would be applicable primarily to ERISA and it wouldn't have an effect on these other statutes? No, Justice Kennedy, I don't. The, uh, the Court has oftentimes emphasized that fee-shifting statutes ought to be read in parallel, that we ought to have fewer rather than more fee-shifting standards in the world. And so presumably the result in this case would govern any number of fee-shifting statutes of similar language. What if the parties, to follow up on Justice Ginsburg's line of questioning, what if the parties decide, look, this case rises or falls on the discovery issue? If we have to go through discovery, it's going to cost us a lot more than to pay you. So we stipulate whatever the ruling is on discovery will decide the issue. In that case, can the uh, party, can the claimant get fees? Uh, I'm sorry, Your Honor. In this hypothetical, the district court grants the discovery order but, the, but still holds jurisdiction over the case? Well, it grants the discovery order, and as a result, a direct result of that ruling, the uh, plan pays, pays benefits. No, Your Honor. I believe that this Court has rejected the direct results theory and has instructed us to look at the content of judicial judgments, not at their ancillary effects on parties out in the world. between prevailing party and some success on the merits for you? The only difference is whether they won on one cause of action as opposed to four? Your Honor, in Ruckel's House, the Court emphasized that omitting words like prevailing party or success from a statute is significant but not revolutionary, that what it accomplishes is a decrease in the quantum of success required, the degree, I believe, was the Court's language, but not the type of success required. So So under the canon, 51 percent only entitles you to fees, and under your view of this statute, as long as you get 1 percent order, that's enough. Your Honor, the the Court in Ruckel's House was speaking of uh, the interpretation of prevailing party that, was, that held sway in circuit courts in the 1970s. It, that, at that time, prevailing party had been read quite narrowly to require substantially prevailing. And uh, the Court understood Congress to reject that standard in adopting a statute that doesn't include language like prevailing party. Subsequently, this Court has adopted a much more liberal understanding of the words prevailing party, so there may not be — So you see no difference today? There may still be a difference, but it will be a smaller difference and a difference only in quantity, certainly not a difference in type. The result — the success still has to be success that you can find in a judgment of a Court. Uh, Your Honors, if I could um, — Your Honors, uh, as a matter of policy, the plaintiffs have argued that this will uh, result in um, that. Uh, I'm sorry. As a matter of policy, the plaintiffs, res- the petitioners' rule would result in a second major litigation over attorneys' fees, and this court has uh, rejected any such rules. The concern is uh, that the fee-shifting inquiry ought to be. Uh, simple and easy to administer. The, the ease of administrability of our rule is that it turns on the contents of judicial judgments. Uh, if the petitioner wins in this case, the policy result will merely be stingier plans. So these are not plans that uh, any private party is obliged to create, 
And this Court has emphasized that the purpose of ERISA is to uh, balance the interests of beneficiaries on the one hand, but also the interest in the creation of these plans and the generosity of these plans on the other. And a fee award under circumstances like this would result in uh, far less generous plans for uh, — for, um, May I ask this question? You rely very heavily on, on Ruckelshaus. <coughs> which, of course, was a case in which the fees were sought to be imposed against the government. And is there a basis for distinguishing on a sort of a sovereign immunity approach for saying that maybe there should be a stricter standard when you're taking money away from the sovereign than when you're taking it away from private litigants? Your Honor, I don't think so. The Solicitor General is here arguing that this ought to be the rule, and it would presumably be the same rule even in a statute that applied against the government. Again, this Court has cautioned against a proliferation of different fee-shifting standards. I would think there would be a concern about having a different standard apply to the government than to a private party on a on similar statutory text. Certainly no indication in this statutory text. It's a trust, trust law. Is, is at issue here is the government's assertion. Your Honor, I agree with you that it seems artificial in a way to apply uh, those — to apply to import those principles entirely. On the other hand, this Court has emphasized that ERISA is informed by trust principles, and under Sprague, the Court emphasized that uh, trust principles would very rarely shift fees in a context like this. So to that extent, I do believe that uh, this provision should be informed by that, this Court's holding on that point. Just to reemphasize, Your Honors, what actually happened in the District Court below. So the petitioner sought uh, judgment as a matter of law for benefits, and that motion was denied. Instead, she received an interlocutory procedural order, a remand to her adversary, a private party in litigation, to consider the question again, and as this Court emphasized, the, the second inquiry by the claims administrator would be reviewed for abuse of discretion. It could, it could easily have come out the other way, as the District Court itself acknowledged. You also received, she also received a conditional judgment in her favor. Uh, the District Court specified that if Reliance did not comply with this procedure — He said, unless, unless this order goes effect within 30 days, the judgment will be entered for the plaintiff, for her, for her. Yes, Your Honor, that's true. But I don't think that distinguishes this from — Well, she got one judgment in her favor. It was a conditional judgment. I mean, if we're being technical, if we're going to just do this totally on some kind of procedural theory of what's a judgment and — uh, what's a judgment in your favor, and we just don't want to look to the merits of it and see what really happened, uh, then why doesn't she win? Because she got a judgment in her favor. Okay? End of the matter. Well, your Honor, she didn't actually get a judgment. Oh, she let's got read a- the judgment. Let's see. It says, it says, judgment, is it, it says in a, what, what is it called? Where, I just saw it. My, my colleague had it here. It says, I think this is a judge. It says conclusion. It says, and it's in a conclusion, and it says what happens, and it says it denies, 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 and then it says, uh, in reliance to act on Mrs. Hart's application, adequately considering all the evidence within 30 days, otherwise judgment will be issued in favor of Mrs. Hart. Now, that's in a kind of judgment, I guess. It's in an order. So an order saying we'll issue a judgment sounds to me like you could say that's a judgment in her favor. You don't have to, but you could. 
Your Honor, I think that's only to, the district court was only saying what is implicit in all, most all perceived. No, orders. normally a judge or a judge doesn't say it is ordered that if you do not act within 30 days, there will be a judgment entered in favor of the plaintiff. That's that's not a usual thing. But Your Honor, if a party ignores a procedural order of a district court, it does so often on peril of default. So it I'm just saying, if we're going to be formal. And we're going to look to certain words included in, pertin- in certain papers, irrespective of what really happened. Don't we have those words in the paper that's relevant here? Well, again, Your Honor, the district court did not decide the merits of this case. The district court offered the possibility that it would enter judgment if something happened in the future. That thing did not happen in the future, but there was no judgment in her favor in this case. Again, the, the, the issue was remanded to a private party to determine the issue. The grant of benefits on remand certainly could not constitute success on the merits. That was not judicial action at all. That was the action of a private party. Purely voluntary action certainly couldn't constitute a judgment under Rule 54. And then when the case arrived back at the district court, the district court did the only thing that it was left to do, which was to dismiss the case. And those are the actual actions the district court took, denying her motion for summary judgment and dismissing the case. And uh, under this Court's precedence, where we look for success is in those judgments. Those judgments show us no success on the merits for Ms. Hart. Are there no further questions? Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Addis, you have four minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I have two points on rebuttal. Under there, we must have a final judgment on the benefits on her claim for benefit, final judgment on the merits on her claim for benefits. That is absolutely foreclosed by this Court's decision in Schaefer, where a Social Security claimant comes forward, shows a violation by the Secretary, it's remanded back to the Secretary, the case is closed at that point. There was no decision on the merits for the benefits, and yet this Court found that was prevailing party. Here, we don't need prevailing party. But moreover, even accepting their theory, it leads to absurd results. There is a provision in ERISA, 1132C, that gives a claimant the right to seek documents. And yet, they are saying if the claimant is wholly successful to get the planned documents from which certain claims you don't even know if you have until you read those plans, they would say it's a purely procedural victory. You cannot get attorney's fees. The whole point of that provision was to require the fiduciary to give the documents over so people can understand their rights. Moreover, their final judgment on the merits for benefits rule leads to perverse incentives under ERISA. The plan administrator is incented to deny the first time around, challenge it all the way through the courts. On remand, maybe if they get a conditional judgment as here that says, if you don't act within 30 days, I'm giving you that judgment, they then grant the benefits and the court gets rid of the case, they have succeeded in eliminating the right of claimants to get to court to pursue their rights. 
because of the costs of litigation. But moreover, here we have a judgment. To be clear, that is not our argument. We had a conditional judgment by the district court sending it back. If you do not act in accordance with law within 30 days, I will enter judgment on this case. We have that. But at the end of the day, it was not a dismissal. They overlooked District Court Docket 57. There was a judgment entered in Ms. Hart's favor against reliance in the amount of attorney's fees. The original order merges into that judgment. We have a final judgment here as well. Although we don't need it under Section 502G1, we have it here. This Court should not require a judgment before fees can be awarded. The whole, and it certainly shouldn't adopt a purely procedural rule out of thin air that's not in the statute. This is a procedural statute. The only way claimants can effectuate their rights is ensuring the procedure is followed. That is what we have here. They did not follow proper procedure. They abused their discretion. They breached a fiduciary obligation to the claimant. In these circumstances, under the clear language and clear structure of this statute, this claimant is entitled to fees. The only — may I finish? Sure. The only issue that Reliance contested was whether she was a prevailing party. Knock that leg out of the stool. Their case fails. Thank, Thank you, Counsel. You. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.